Welcome, and let's first talk compliance. I'm Catherine Short, Partnership Marketing Manager at First Healthcare Compliance. Thanks for tuning in. This show is brought to you by First Healthcare Compliance as part of our commitment to provide high-quality, complimentary educational resources. We help create confidence among compliance professionals throughout the United States. Please show your support by taking a moment to provide a review on Google, Facebook, or iTunes. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or subscribe to our YouTube channel. On today's episode, we are speaking with Dr. Mary Hoppe, MD, MBA, Senior Consultant with The Greeley Company, which provides solutions through consulting, education, interim staffing, credentialing management, and external peer review to healthcare organizations nationwide about the do's and don'ts of designing an aging physician policy. We will be discussing how to identify and address competency issues among senior physicians and best practices to prevent potential safety incidents that could have long-term consequences for both patients and the practitioner. We will also learn how to recognize age-related impairments that affect a healthcare professional's ability to safely administer care, look at how to design a fair aging policy to protect both practitioners and patients, as well as focusing in on how to address competency issues and when privileging needs need to be reassessed or revoked. Well, hello, Dr. Hoppe. What a privilege to have you join me today on First Talk Compliance about this important topic. Thank you for inviting me. Yes, well, thank you for being here. Practicing U.S. physicians are getting older with 43% of physicians ages 55 to 65. Do you think now more than ever, it's important for hospital organizations to understand how to design an aging physician policy? Oh, absolutely. I think it's absolutely essential for hospital organizations, particularly the medical staffs, to address the issue of the aging practitioner. When you think about it, firstly, the board delegates to the medical staff the responsibility of ensuring the quality of care delivered by everyone who's been granted privileges. So really, it is our job, the medical staff's job, to do so. Secondly, physicians really want to practice excellent patient care for as long as that they're capable of doing so. Sometimes today they may want to practice longer because there's an economic need to do so, but for many, being a physician is part of their identity. Therefore, they can't see themselves really doing anything else. So if we're going to have those aging physicians, we do want to make sure that we're, ha- we're delivering great patient care. But physicians say, If you're going to develop something, please develop something that's fair. So developing a policy ahead of time before you start dealing with incidents piecemeal and hit hit and miss where you may deal with one practitioner one way and one practitioner another way, they would prefer that you develop an aging policy proactively so that you can then apply that policy to everyone fairly. Okay, so something that they know what they are seeing ahead of time so that they know that they're dealing with something fairly and that they can see it coming down the pike. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Okay, all right. So why are regulators silent when it comes to assessing the impact of aging and health-related issues of healthcare providers? 
It's really interesting. I wouldn't say necessarily that they're completely silent, but I can say they're really pretty vague on this issue. But what's interesting is just north of our border in Canada, the government there in a couple of provinces has actually addressed this. When you look at the province of Quebec, physicians over the age of 60 are queried periodically to try to identify potential risk factors that might indicate some decline in functioning with age. In the province of Ontario, physicians have peer assessments starting at the age of 70 and every five years thereafter. In the province of Manitoba, they start doing chart audits and they're conducted every five years starting at age 75. But here in the U.S., the regulators have been less prescriptive. When you look at it, all regulators do demand all physicians have quality assessments because we want to make sure that all practitioners, everybody granted privileges, are competent when they're initially credentialed and when they're recredentialed. Joint Commission, in addition, also has a standard that addresses the identification and management of, quote, health issues, although they don't specifically mention the aging process. But I think today it's actually even more acceptable than it was, say, five or ten years ago, because even the AMA has now recognized the need to develop guidelines and methods of screening and assessing so that we can assure that those aging or later career physicians remain able to provide safe and effective care for patients. So when we do this, we want to make sure that we, again, do it fairly. Many organizations have said, and many physicians will say, you know, if we have a really good robust peer review system will capture things, no matter the age. But most peer review systems around the country are oriented to, to analyzing things after they've already happened. Most organizations that develop aging practitioner policies like to look at things proactively so that we can actually find those at-risk people try to remediate things, try to mitigate things before any errors do occur. On a daily basis, physicians deal with the effects of ill health and aging of their patient population. And yet rarely it seems like they discuss the effects of either these processes on themselves. What are some common performance risks for aging physicians? Uh, we as physicians, I don't believe we look in the mirror very often sometimes. Mm, okay. uh, we have to realize physicians are people. They have the same issues with aging, whether physical effects, cognitive effects, as the general population. Now, there is some literature out there that supports that higher education has a mild protective effect from dementia, but it does not provide immunity against the onset of dementia. But there's a couple of areas where I think it's of particular importance for physicians. Think of uh, going and having to get your visual acuity test to, to get a driver's license. You can imagine how much vision is important to some, some, some of our physicians, particularly proceduralists. Think of the, the older person who may have some problems with auditory acuity. Well, think of the ICU environment or the anesthesia environment where it's an environment totally alarm-driven 
and they may have some difficulty recognizing some of these alarms due to those acuity changes. And actually, Katz, in his article on issues of concern for the aging anesthesiologist, has noted this. Think of other things. There may be things like diabetes, loss of sometimes perception and, and tactile sensation, say in fingers, uh, neuromuscular disorder, disorders, strokes. Physicians are susceptible to all these illnesses like other individuals. But I think there's a unique area where physicians are different. Physicians frequently in hospitals stay on call stay on call until an advanced age. So sometimes when you're on call, you're dealing with that issue of sleep deprivation. We know that as we all age in the regular population, we, we can't stay up at night like we did when we were youngsters or when we were in college. And not only do older physicians and practitioners have more difficulty with sleep deprivation, but it also takes them a longer time to recover once they have been on call. The last thing is, is there's been some studies out there that show that there's some mild cognitive impairment in about 10 to 20 percent of the population over the age of 65. Now, this mild impairment may not affect normal daily living. It may not even affect a practitioner, say, in an office practice, but frequently in a hospital area where frequently we're asking physicians to multitask and multitask complex items simultaneously, those are areas where some issues of mild cognitive impairment may be having more of an effect in that population of physicians than it is in others. All right, that's very important to think about. Is there significant evidence in the general population that aging decreases optimal performance? And what about in the medical field or any specific stats you could share about this? Yes, there are. And there's a couple oldies but goodies, but they but there are really some good studies out there. One of the best I think was by a gentleman by the name of Chowdhury. And his article was called Systematic Review, the Relationship Between Clinical Experience and the Quality of Healthcare. It analyzed 59 other studies that had been done out there. And what was interesting is you normally think that the longer you practice medicine, the more experienced you are, the wiser you are, the better the outcomes you'll have. Well, they actually studied that. And what they found is that 4% of the practitioner population had a positive correlation. The more experience they had, the better the outcomes they had. In 3% of the practitioner population, there was an initial increase in performance with experience, but then after a period of time, it waned. And so therefore, they had decreasing performance as they continued on in practice. In 21% of the population, there was no correlation at all between experience and outcomes. And what's remarkable was that in 73% of those tested, there was a negative correlation of increasing experience and having worse outcomes, either in some or all of the areas that they were testing for. And what this means is, is that the longer you are out from your training, there is some importance to experience, mm -hmm. but the longer you are out from training, 
the longer you're no longer being pushed to keep up with all of that medical reading and all of those current evidence practice based things that that you're doing and so you tend to have uh, right. less compliance with evidence-based guidelines. Mm -hmm. And there's another study out there by Walji in the Annals of Surgery back in September of 2006. And they said, you know, um, what we found is that there was three procedures, particularly those complex procedures, that older physicians over the age of 60 Aren't, don't have as good outcomes and have actually higher mortality rates. Now, these were complex procedures like pancreatectomy, coronary artery bypass grafting, and carotid endarterectomy. But as you think of it, sometimes practitioners, as they age, they want to slow down a little bit. And what they found is, is if you slowed down in these complex procedures, it even got worse. So sometimes, you know, as we think of aging, we, sometimes we want to actually keep up our volumes on some of that stuff or huh. choose not to do certain things, but concentrate on maybe some less complex things. Wow, that's, that's very interesting to hear about. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to First Talk Compliance, brought to you by First Healthcare Compliance, as part of our commitment to provide high-quality, complementary educational resources. We help create confidence among compliance professionals throughout the United States. My guest today is Dr. Mary Hoppe, MD, MBA, Senior Consultant with The Greeley Company, about the do's and don'ts of designing an aging physician policy. Please show your support by taking a few minutes to provide a review of First Healthcare Compliance on Google or Facebook. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Should we treat practitioners differently as they age? And if so, what does that mean? How does that look? I can tell you there's a whole huge discussion out there right now, particularly with some of our legal colleagues, because there's a question, if we do set up a policy on the aging physician, are we setting our, up ourselves for actually an accusation of age discrimination? And so sometimes we've seen some legal counsels that say, do what's right, we can defend it. Others say, you know, maybe we have to couch it slightly differently because just as we said a few minutes ago about the longer you are out from practice, the less likelihood you are of practicing current evidence-based medicine. Maybe we can couch this into years elapsed since training rather than an actual age. So how you deal with it may be somewhat nuanced, but if it's addressed proactively, so that you're not targeting a specific individual and you try to develop policies that actually measure performance so that you can very early see if there's declines in performance. What you want to do is try to remediate any issues before they occur. Then a lot of times medical staffs now are thinking much more positively about these, about these aging physician policies than they did 10 and 20 years ago. So what age should we begin to treat them differently if we've made some kind of decision? There's, uh, there's no magic age that I've seen this done at. Again, it could be a specific age, or again, it could be a specific number of years since the completion of training. It's, it, this is something you got. It's a cultural decision, 
but legal also needs to weigh in on it. But when I have had organizations choose to implement a policy like this, probably the most common age I see is it's usually instituted around the age of 70. If an organization has concerns about a physician's well-being, what is the first step they should take? I think it depends. Is it an issue of well-being because we think that there's a problem with, say, substance abuse, et cetera? That's one pathway. If we're talking more as we are today regarding the aging issues, what I always encourage uh, most organizations to do is get objective data first. How do I differ today from maybe what my past performance was? Or how do I differ today from others in my specialty? We as physicians don't normally want to hear something like, well, I think your practice is different or I think your performance is waning. No, we want to actually see some hard data. But once there is some objective data, then we just need someone, usually in medical staff leadership, who needs to sit down with us openly and honestly in a private setting and discuss the issue. It needs to be done collegially. It needs to be done with compassion. But the objective really is to truly try try to find out what's going on and can we mitigate it before it may lead to any adverse effects in the future. Let's discuss the ways in which hospitals and health systems can address the challenges associated with designing an aging physician policy. Is there a correct way to deal with the sensitive issues with the aging or late career practitioner? I don't think that there's any one correct way. There's probably a lot of incorrect ways. And again, I think anytime you start dealing with issues of things, you want to again have that proactively developed policy. And Luckily, the attitude about this has been changing over the last couple of decades. Physicians realize that their performance is always under scrutiny in this era of public accountability for quality. And in fact, I think newer physicians coming out of training kind of expect to be continually evaluated throughout their career. And I think it's really good that the AMA is no longer adverse to developing these kinds of policies, and that is important to certain physicians. But as we stated earlier, physicians want to be treated fairly. At Greeley, one of our core principles or core sayings is what we call the five Ps. It's our policy to follow our policy. In the absence of a policy, It's our policy to create a policy. And it sounds circuitous, and it is, but it's really the best way to ensure that fairness. Because if we don't have that policy, as we said earlier, we could be dealt with differently. So what we want to do is the correct way is to be fair, develop the policy, develop it proactively so that we're not targeting a specific individual or appear that we're targeting a specific individual and work with the medical staff on this policy. Great. How can organizations lead a discussion on credentialing for aging physicians? I think when we're having these discussions on credentialing of aging physicians or having these conversations, again, it's being proactively developed. We normally work with a core group of medical staff, including practitioners that are nearing that age where something might be implemented. Again, we want to address a policy that 
that identifies any physical or cognitive issues, but we want to address them up front so we can mitigate any events from occurring. We want to make sure that we bring all audiences into play because sometimes we may have the greatest intent with the policy we develop, but there's always those unintended consequences because there was an unknown impact that it had on a specific group of individuals. So we want to make sure that we have a broad audience that we're dealing with in this core group so we can try to figure out what are all of those impacts and so that we can take those into account as we develop those policies. Who should be having these conversations and how can these conversations impact members of an organized medical staff? I think it's really got to be practitioner, specifically physician driven. A lot of times you might have like a chief medical officer or somebody who's a physician who's part of administration that is also very useful on this. What we want to make sure, though, is that we do it correctly. Physicians are inherently conservative. I'm not talking political now just in their practice of medicine. We're very highly resistant to change. You show me that randomized double-blinded study that says your treatment's better than not, than mine, and maybe I'll consider using it. So we got to have something that works. We have to develop it as physicians because none of us want anything shoved down our throat. Um, that methodology does not work well with physicians. So what I found seems to work best is let it be known that you're going to be working on a policy. So get invitations or invite people to participate. Obviously, you're, you're going to be working with some constraints on size because you can only have a working group of a certain size, but work with that core group including several aging practitioners, so that, again, not only can you develop a policy with good intent, you've kind of looked at what those impacts could be. Once this core group comes up with their best draft, then you need to really socialize it amongst a broader audience of the medical staff before it goes for final approval. That socialization with another audience will bring up any other, other things that they may have thought of that you, you just didn't in your wisdom think of in your core group developing the policy, but then it also gives them ownership and buy-in over the final product before it actually gets implemented by the medical staff. So what you always want to do is make sure that it's not a shotgun approach. It's done very well. It's not necessarily the swiftest of, of processes because you want to do the appropriate socializations so you can get their buy-in to actually getting it done well. Very good. So what are some best practices for hospital organizations looking to proactively develop an aging physician policy? And I think it's pretty much kind of what we talked about earlier, developing that proactive policy, working with that initial group. But I think there's a couple of items you want to make sure you address in the policy. And one of them is, what is the physical ability to perform? Too many physicians don't get their own routine health assessments to find problems. So, you know, it's, it's not unknown for a physician to have undiagnosed diabetes or other problems at an advanced age because they've not had it assessed sooner. So, so making sure that you have some physical assessment so that there's a fitness to duty 
are you fit to do the the things, the privileges you've been granted, both from a physical aspect and from a cognitive aspect. The second part of, of an aging physician policy also usually looks at what's your actual performance in the organization? Kind of a focused review on the individual. So whenever you turn that certain age, you know that you're going to be under just a little bit more scrutiny. And this could involve just a review of records to ensure are you practicing current evidence-based medicine? Or even for proceduralists, it might be watching them do a certain selection of procedures. We, we look at people very specifically when they first come on board. Maybe we need to look at them in, in that same fashion when they hit these targets that we've set, either years elapsed of practice or a certain age, because we know there may be reasons to do so. Can you speak to a practitioner health committee and to the benefits of a practitioner health committee and what that is? Oh, I love practitioner health committees. I think they're a great benefit to most medical staffs. It's usually a committee. It has a somewhat restricted membership, and this restricted membership tends to have longer terms. The reason is, is this is a committee that's probably going to be dealing with some pretty sensitive subjects, whether that practitioner health committee is dealing with issues of health, you know, and that's when you start thinking of HIPAA and all of those other things, you know, you, you just don't have your health publicized in the hospital. If it's dealing with impairment, all those are very sensitive issues, but so are behavior issues, aging issues, etc. So the membership on this committee seems to be somewhat restricted, usually a little bit longer term because you don't want that sensitive information being necessarily heard by a lot of people. But what's neat about this committee is because they tend to be a longer term committee, the committee is very standardized. It's It does the same thing again and again to like situations. We like to treat like practitioners in a like manner, but it should be a committee that provides support to the practitioner community because very rarely does it ever get involved in the corrective action. It tends to be more of a helper for the practitioner because it's the medical executive committee that may need to make recommendations for corrective action if something's been recommended for somebody and they haven't done it. But this committee also is usually also focused on education, education to the rest of the hospital staff so that we can more actually proactively address practitioners with potential issues so we can make sure that we evaluate them appropriately and deal with any necessary situations. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Hoppe. Do you have any other bits of advice for us, any good words for us, things that we should remember? My only words of wisdom is, is hopefully we all age. Hopefully, we will not have other things that impair our aging process. And you always want to treat others as you would want to be treated yourself. So think of yourself, how you would want to be treated at that age of 65, 70, 75 in practice. Think of that as you develop your policy. Again, treat others as you would like to be treated yourself. Yes. Well, thank you so much again for being here. Really, really appreciated you coming on to First Talk Compliance and sharing your wisdom with us. I very much appreciate it. Thank you for having me. 
Yes. And thanks to our audience for tuning in to First Talk Compliance. We always appreciate you. You can learn more about our show on the programs page on healthcarenowradio.com and lend your voice to the conversation on Twitter at FirstHCC or hashtag FirstTalkCompliance. You can also email me at Catherine Short at FirstHCC.com. I'm Catherine Short of First Healthcare Compliance. Remember, compliance is the key to achieving peace of mind. <laughs>